Very grateful for Dave and for the missions team and the way that they are helping keep our focus on on what we're doing. Uh, We want to be a beacon for the gospel, and we are grateful that the gospel resounds out from this place, not only here into our community, but also around the world, and that we get to participate in what God's doing there. And to have this relationship uh, with Lois and and the work that's being done in Kenya is a unique thing. Um, We've really been a part of something at Ground Zero. And every time we hear back from them, there's just more churches. The last time I recall, it was like 20-something churches that have been planted. Now there's 30-something churches that have been planted. And, uh, and it, the beauty is that these are gospel churches. Uh, these aren't uh, uh, churches that are just sort of peddling religiosity for the sake of profit. Uh, you, when you go there, you'll, you'll see tons of churches all over the place. But a lot of them are there uh, just to gain more um, from a financial standpoint. A lot of them are word-faith type churches. And it's beautiful to see that there's a gospel work happening. So praise God for that. Thank you for being part of that. Let's continue to pray and to support Lois and what she's doing and, and Shad and Fitz as they lead uh, that, that ministry. So uh, there's a book that was written not long ago. Uh, it's entitled Broken Down House by a guy named Paul Tripp. And, and he describes the sin-broken, fallen world we live in And he uses that picture of a broken down house. And he puts it this way. He says, sin has ravaged the beautiful house that God created. This world bears only the faintest resemblance to what it was built to be. It sits slumped, disheveled, in pain, groaning for the restoration that can only be accomplished by the hands of him who built it in the first place. Uh, And that's a a well put description of, of the world we live in. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, as we look at this, I mean, we, we sense this, don't we? I'm not, I'm not sure if you sense it or not, but li- life is just messy, isn't it? Uh, life's difficult. We face challenges constantly. And, and um, you know, God, God is committed to not leaving this world in that disheveled place. As a matter of fact, he's the one that's brought uh, restoration, the beginning of which is, is Jesus Christ himself coming, the king. Uh, and he's begun this work in his people uh, as those who've repented from their sins and trusted in Christ to have new life placed within them. There's the spirit of God that dwells within and there's a, a renovation project happening in each believer's life. Well, we would call that progressive sanctification. The idea of you're growing more and more. You're becoming uh, new, different, in a progressive way. But that also then affects the world around us. As we go into workplaces and, and, and schoolyards and marketplaces and have time with neighbors and with family and friends, this, this thing of life within us in Jesus is contagious and it, and it, and it spreads. And, and we find this remaking of that which is old already beginning. Now, there's going to come that day when Jesus returns and when he makes all things new. A new heavens, a new earth. For those who've trusted in him, new bodies built for this new realm. We anticipate that day. We look forward to that day. But right now, we live in this in-between thing. Uh, The beginnings are in us. The desires are in us. New perspectives, the truth, the light of God's word uh, opens up to us seeing things from God's vantage point. We have these um, ways in which we can navigate through the mess of this life, and yet we're not there yet. We've talked about this before. Some have described this as, as the reality of us living in the already not yet. 
of being a child of God, the work he's begun in us, he's going to be faithful to complete it, but we're not there. And in the midst of that already not yetness, <laughs> we struggle. And, and, and even as God's called out people, the church, we struggle in this world, in this place, in this time. And so that's the thing, you know, living in a broken world is hard, and when we turn to Christ by faith and receive his gift of salvation, we've all noticed the mess doesn't just disappear. And so as we gather as God's people, we're still a messy people. Thankfully, a messy people saved by grace. Uh, And it's beautiful, but let's face it, sometimes it's not pretty, (laughs) You know, we struggle with sin, we hurt and offend one another, we get distracted by the, by the different trinkets of the world around us that promise us everything and deliver nothing that they promise, really. There are times when we, we can f- even act as though we're functional atheists. Um, we forget God. We live life on our own terms, in our own way for ourselves. And yet the Bible tells us over and over and over again, God is still at work in the middle of it all, calling us to repentance, calling us to grow in him. And and so the question we kind of need to ask is, it would be, how do we as believers then deal with this mess of walking as a believer in a broken world? How do we deal with that? And, and, And then how do we do that along with brothers and sisters who are also traveling through this already not yet season? And yes, we're redeemed, and we've been given new life, as we've already stated. And we look ahead to hope in his return, the final victory over sin and death. All of it gone forever. But how do we do that together as redeemed, imperfect people walking as God's children through a a broken world? Well, that's the reason why we're embarking today on a journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. Because this is a real gritty letter dealing with the nature of life in the local church in a very worldly context and culture. And uh, when, we, when we think of Corinth, and just, just to describe who these people are that Paul wrote the letter to, that city was, it was a very important city in ancient Greece. And it was uh, destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, and then Julius Caesar rebuilt it as a Roman colony in 46 BC. And it grew and it prospered. It became uh, the capital of the province of Achaia. Its official language was Latin, but the common language that was spoken was Greek. And it was strategically located. As a matter of fact, you can, you can go there today and see it for yourself. Uh, it was located right between two major bodies of water, and uh, a, a prominent place where a lot of trade would come through. Because uh, the particular isthmus it was on, to travel 250 miles around the southern portion of it was treacherous. So instead, they would actually put these large ships on these rails of sorts and truck them across the, the middle of this thing to avoid the treacherous oceans. And uh, because of the two seaports, it became sort of a, a center of, of, of a lot of commercial activity. And, uh, you know, Nero actually tried to build a canal through that, that area, and he couldn't do it. 
it would eventually happen, but it would be several centuries later. The city had all kinds of shrines and temples. So what you're looking at right there is, are the ruins of the, the temple to Apollos. So there was a lot of different worship of a lot of different gods. Um, Aphrodite was also a very, very prominent goddess that was worshipped. Um, she was the goddess of love, and, and there were temple prostitutes in the thousands that, uh, that worshipers would, would uh, engage with in that form of cultic worship. In Paul's day, the population of Corinth would have been about 700,000 people, and two-thirds of those people were slaves. So Greek philosophy was, was really big in that culture at that time. And so philosophical thought, arguments, rhetoric, uh, they would gather at the city center just to hear people go back and forth to describe different philosophical positions, perspectives. It was really like a sport. Uh, you know, t- today, you might have heard there's, there's a game on later today. Uh, a lot of people are going to be watching it. For us, we kind of value those kinds of events. To them, philosophical debate was the same kind of, kind of enthusiastic thing to be observed. Uh, they would want to see that and hear the latest arguments. And so it's in the midst of this culture that Paul established a church. And on his second missionary journey, and uh, he had been up in Macedonia, and what happened was there was persecution there, and he had been working there, and so he came south from there to Athens, and then he proceeded from Athens on to Corinth. And he was making tents in order to kind of make ends meet, and uh, he and Aquila and Priscilla would be reasoning with, with the Jewish people in the synagogues. And then eventually, because of opposition to their ministry, they left the synagogue and they kind of began just house churches there. In Corinth, so there was one particular uh, gathering in this house church that was blossoming and growing, and he taught the word there for eighteen months in about AD fifty-one to fifty-two, and then he left and he went on to Ephesus. And after his departure, Apollos came. Actually, Apollos came from Ephesus, and he also began to teach there at the church at Corinth. Uh, later, during his third missionary journey, though, Paul got some disturbing reports from Chloe's household concerning quarrels in the church at Corinth. And then after that, after he started hearing of this this divisive kind of backbiting and going back and forth, he actually got a letter. There was a delegation of three that came to Paul, and they brought questions to him on various different issues. So when Paul wrote this letter, it's in response to the troubling reports he's heard and the questions that came in this letter. And this, this church was, was fascinating. It, it had blossomed into actually a fairly large church. So it was growing, and that's wonderful. And lots of people were coming to Christ. And yet, uh, sadly, we find from the contents of the letter that the church had a lot of challenges. As we look at 1 Corinthians, we see that it had cliques. So different people were following different personalities, especially in the nature of the teachers. So some were saying, well, I'm of Apollos, because that guy, man, he can preach. And I was like, no, I'm of Cephas. I like Peter better. And then some were so God that they would say, I'm of Christ. You can kind of see the, the arrogance there. You know, I, I don't follow them. So it's all about who do you listen to? Who do you follow? There, were, there was a snobbery amongst the believers there during fellowship meals. And, and the rich would keep to themselves, and then the poor were left alone. There was very little... Um, uh, 
way in which they would confront sin. There was a lot of ways in which sin just kind of ran along and everyone kind of kept to themselves. So they didn't practice church discipline. And, and so there was doctrine that was sagging, morals. If you're looking at the house, you know, moral integrity is sagging, doctrine is sagging. And then, and then they were also unwilling to submit to authority often. And, and so even the integrity of Paul's own apostleship was frequently called into question. A lot of times because he was different than Apollo. So apparently when Apollos came in, dynamic speaker, he brought it. You know, like, bam, he could preach it. And then Paul would come in and he would preach, but he didn't have that same dynamic quality. They'd be like, this guy's an apostle? Remember, they value rhetoric. They want to see the debate. They want to see the skill. And uh, when we read Paul, you're like, you want rhetoric? You want logic? You want skill? Hello, Paul is your guy. Are you crazy? But from what we can tell, as he spoke publicly, perhaps it wasn't the same. Um, So there's a huge lack of humility. Um, There was also this self-centeredness that was just rampant there, so much so that there were some believers that were willing to take other believers to court. So there were lawsuits happening amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And then others would celebrate their their kind of freedom of conscience without any regard for brothers and sisters amongst them who had weaker consciences on different issues. So they would flaunt their freedom. In another way, too, they were also kind of caught up with or preoccupied with the, the dramatic, visible, publicly displayed gifts of the Spirit. There are many gifts given by the Holy Spirit to his people, and those gifts are for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. But they were more into the prominent ones that you could see, that you could look at, that you could observe, and they wanted to show their stuff so that when they would gather as a church, it was disorderly, and people were, were stepping up to, to kind of show off their gift. And this is the church that Paul's about to care for through this letter. (laughs) Um, The church is God's work. And it's a beautiful work. And yet, this particular expression of God's church, this local church family needs some correction. And so he's faced with writing this church in this situation. He's about to address them, and he's going to open the letter. Let me ask you a question. If you were writing this letter, how would you open it? What would you say? And we have different personalities in this room. I'm looking at some of you and I'm like, yeah, I think I know maybe how you'd say it. So there are some in this room that'd be like, you people need to repent. Come on. There's that approach. By the way, it wouldn't be wrong. It's true. There might be others amongst us who are a little bit more like, you know, the soft spoken type would be like, so, uh, I don't know, this click thing, like, like do, you, do you really think it's working for you? Like, is that working? Kind of a softer mode. One thing I am wonderfully and beautifully surprised at is how Paul opens this. Uh, because what he does is he calls them to a very, very beautiful and important focus, even before he begins to deal with the issues and confront them. And so let's see how Paul opens his letter to the church at Corinth. Go ahead and open, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 9. 
And in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read? First hmm. Corinthians, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship With his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive your word today. Each one of us gathered in this place or gathered online, um, we are looking to you uh, to do what only you can do, which is bring light, truth, encouragement, help, and correction, redirection. We we long to be your people and we long to follow you. And in the midst of the mess, we want to navigate it well and we want to depend upon you, but we also want to see it from your perspective as we deal with one another and as we live our lives in various places uh, throughout this culture. So we ask you now to to do mighty things. We pray that your spirit himself would be mightily at work as we share this time together in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So we could approach this opening section in a lot of different ways. Uh, there's so many things here. There's, there's a lot of principles here. There's many elements of theology here. There's many elements of practical theology here. But the, the one thing that stands out to me in this and the way we're going to frame it is, is, is sort of look at the question, how do we navigate the mess of the already not yet? <laughs> how do we do that? How do we go through this? Especially as we're one anothering especially as we're caring for brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we do that? How do we approach it? And, and I think Paul's approach here is really, really instructive. Um, because as he looks at the mess, and it clearly is one, as you'll see, um, as he deals with all these issues from divisiveness to arrogance to pride to self-righteousness to desiring to be prominent, to clickishness. Uh, there's, there's actually sexual immorality in the church that, that is the kind of thing that he's going, I can't even believe you guys haven't confronted this at all. There was incest happening in the midst of this church. All these different things are going on here, and he's dealing with them all head on. And yet, in these opening moments, 
He is taking gospel lenses and putting them on to see the situation. Gospel lenses don't remove the uh, reality of what's there. No, they're clarifying. You see more. But they also give accuracy to the frame of reference of what is God doing here. Even as we look at this passage, notice how many times God is brought up and Jesus Christ is brought up. Eight plus times in the opening nine verses. There's a point to that. That means something. (laughs) That's his vantage point. And we need to approach problems in the same way. And so when we see this mess through gospel lenses, we're going to see it more accurately. And so if we're going to navigate through the mess of the already not yet, there's several things we must do. And we find them here. And the first would be this. We must recall God's call. Paul starts off by talking about how he's called as an apostle. Notice you see the word called there. Look at verse 2. Notice they are saints by calling. What's Paul referring to? Well, he's saying, look, I'm an apostle. I'm an eyewitness. That's what an apostle is. An eyewitness to the risen Lord Jesus. Especially called by God to be an official witness of his resurrection. How did that happen for Paul? Well, undoubtedly, Paul's referring to that moment on the Damascus Road. If you're not familiar with that, you can look at it in Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 7. But Paul was traveling on the road to Damascus. He's literally knocked off his horse. He's blinded by light. And he hears the Lord say, Paul, why? Actually, says Saul. Saul, his name was Saul then. Why are you persecuting me? Wow, because that's what Paul was doing. He was, he was a, a, a Jewish um, pharisaical expert in the law. And he was persecuting the church. So he's recalling that in this moment. He's writing, he's going, hey, I'm Paul. I'm called as an, as an apostle. God called me to this work. And essentially, Paul responded to the question with, who are you? And he says, I am, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. What? You know? An amazing moment. And you'll notice he says, I'm an apostle. Look at the second part of the verse one. Through the will of God. In other words, this wasn't my idea. Why? Because they're attacking his apostleship. We'll get to that later. But they're looking at Paul and going, he's an apostle. He's kind of an apostle. He's quasi-apostle. He's kind of like, he's like apostle 2.0, you know, sort of. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm an apostle because God called me. It wasn't my idea. I am an eyewitness. And God put me in this position. And so he's declaring that to them. And then he mentions Sosthenes, our brother, most likely a leader within the local synagogue uh, where he was actually beaten uh, by local officials uh, because they wanted to persecute the way of Christians and they were trying to deal with someone else and they weren't there. So he was almost, he was like beaten in a substitutionary way. It's almost like, really? Seriously? Like, that guy's not found. I'm going to beat this guy anyway. And, but that's him. He's, he's the, um, a co-worker with Paul in this. And notice our brother. So there's, there's an affectionate connection there too with him. They're laboring together in the gospel. It's possible that uh, Sosthenes is functioning as the one taking down dictation for this letter. Uh, we don't exactly know, but 
Anyway, notice how he addresses them. So you're looking at this church. I just listed all those things that are going on. And what is the first thing that Paul says? Through all the mess, through all the yuck, through all the difficulty, look at verse 2. To the church of God. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, that, that phrase is describing that this church belongs to God. With all the blemishes, all the marks, everything that's going on, it belongs to God. It, he, Paul is in the midst of about to being addressed these difficult situations. He is reminding them, you are God's church. Church literally means called out ones. Earlier, John referenced that with, during the kids' minute. The, the building is not the point. The church is the people of God called out from the world, gathered around Christ. And so you're looking at this and you're kind of like, wow, Paul is actually bringing them into this area of, of objective reality. He's starting to frame the whole thing with the gospel, with the reality of who God is and who they are. How do they become the church of God in Corinth? Well, notice those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, this idea of sanctified, it's something that's started happening in the past. It has ongoing results now. So it's, an, it's something that began. You were set apart back then when God called you, but now there's ongoing results in your life now of, of ongoing growth. And you'll notice it happens in Christ Jesus. That's the next part of the phrase. In connection with Christ. Union with Jesus. Being placed into him is how this comes about. But again, these are things that Paul's bringing up and he's saying, look, this happened. He goes on to say, you are saints by calling. You're holy ones by calling. So I was called in as an apostle. You're called as a holy one. And, and you know, I'm not sure what your background is, is religiously. There are some traditions and there's a, a tradition that, that I, I, I grew up in too where saints, saints were like super Christians. You know, saints were like, Man, if you're a saint, you're just like, you know, open the shirt, S, saint, you know, you can fly, you can do it, you can, you know, leap over sin in a single bound, faster than a bullet, you know, whatever it is, right? That's, that's the super Christian no notion of a saint. Think of the church that's being written to, think of the recipients of this letter, and Paul says, you are saints by calling. You're a holy one. You're going, wait a minute, what? Yeah. Paul is describing what happens when people come to God in Christ. There's a radical change in identity. You're sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord. He goes on to describe that. You're not just you. It's not just about the church at Corinth. There is this universal body of Christ. All men and women, people, everyone who comes to Jesus by faith, they're all brought into this fellowship of walking in Christ, living in Christ, empowered by Christ, connected to Christ, all 
called out of the world, all in that process of sanctification, all saints by calling. So he's framing, again, this whole thing he's going to be saying with this truth. He's remembering God's calling on him and God's calling on them. When you deal with the mess of life, do you remember God's calling on you? How about when you're dealing with it with another person, a brother or sister? Maybe someone's offended you. They've hurt you. They've disappointed you. Is your initial approach to them, man, call yourself a Christian? Come on. Or instead, is your initial approach to them framed by the realities of the gospel that as someone who's called on the name of the Lord, as someone who's been saved, as someone who's been placed into Christ, you've been called by God, they've been called by God. And can that be the groundwork then by which you engage with them in whatever the difficulty is? I think we could learn a lot from that. And I think a lot of our efforts at reconciling and, and caring for one another would be greatly, greatly strengthened by having that perspective. Because here's the thing, these things are objective. As sure as Paul was knocked off a horse on the Damascus road and blinded by light and called to be an apostle... So sure is also the calling of every person who's placed their faith in Christ, who's trusted in him. They've been called by God. We don't do that on our own. Left to ourselves, that doesn't happen. Now, the very fact that, that there's been a, a, a coming to the Lord, a, a walking with him, a knowing him, a desiring him, indicates God's work within. And as we approach the mess together, it's really important that we recall God's calling. So how do we navigate the mess of the already not yet? We must not only recall God's call, but secondly, we must also look to God's provision. We see that in verse three. What does God provide? Well, very clearly, he provides two things here. Look, it's grace and peace. Grace and peace. But notice the next part of the phrase. Look closely. Where does that grace and peace come from? From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus and God the Father, they are together the source of grace and peace. Now, some people might think, well, hey, you know, most ancient letters, they kind of began with a greeting like this, you know, and there was, it was sort of like signing your name. Like at the end of your, your letter, when you write someone, we always put it at the end. That's what our culture does, right? So you might write sincerely. How often do you think sincerely is written sincerely? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it sounds good, you know. Of course, these days in the email age, you got all kinds of, you know, Right off, there's an article, you know, what's the best way to sign off your email? Because you want to sound warm, but you don't want to sound, you know, overly kind of like clingy warm. 
but you want to be, you know, but you want to be upbeat, but you don't want to be like flippant, you know? And so there are these experts that weighed in. You know, I think it was like Harvard Business Review, and they wrote together, what, what's the best way? And the conclusion they came, came to is your best bet is to sign off with best. <laughs> Some people are like, oh, man, that's it. Yeah, best comma. Why? Because it's vague enough, eh, but it's upbeat. Best. I read it too, and I'm like, really? That's all you got? I read this whole article for that? You know, really? That's all? Okay, great. So, so some would say that this greeting is just sort of typical. It's just sort of cultural. It's what everybody does. But here's the thing. Yes, it would be typical in the first century to begin a word with, or, uh, uh, an opening with grace to you. That was kind of normal. But grace and peace? Nope. That was not the typical address. Both those things together, that's unique. And so Paul's giving us a beautiful way in which his understanding, again, of this objective reality of union with Christ, the objective reality of God's calling, then leads to the fact that there is a provision given from God alone, grace and peace. Grace is the idea of an undeserved gift. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. It is given simply by the favor and and love of the giver. And so this gift of God has come certainly in in their calling, that God called them to himself. Um, There's there's the gift of ongoing grace, enabling grace. There's the gift of forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 2 is a beautiful place. If you've not read that before, I'd encourage you to go there. For by grace you have been saved. Again, by a gift of God, an undeserved gift, you've been saved. And then Paul goes on to clarify, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. I I think this analogy is good. I've used it before, but I think it's important. If I I come to you and I say, hey, I've got this gift for you, and you're like, whoa, hold on one second. Let me Venmo you one second. Whoa, it's a gift. If you try to pay for it, it's not, what, do you, what do you do with a gift? You receive it. That's it. And so today, if you're here and you've never received the gift of salvation in Christ, this is a moment for you to do that very thing. And it's really simple. You admit that you're a sinner before God. You confess that to him, and then you call upon him to save you. And I'm not saying you need to do that now. I'm not going to say you need to raise your hand right now. I'm not saying, that's not the point. The point is you need to come to Christ. <laughs> Turn to him by faith. Trust him. And, and uh, do business with him. Go before him in prayer. And then receive his gift. Uh, give him Thanks for what he's done on the cross. Jesus is the one who declares, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And uh, if you'd like to talk further about that, you can talk to me or anybody else here in this room. We'd love to have that conversation with you. But God provides grace and peace. Peace is so elusive, isn't it? Don't you want peace? 
We do. We crave it. We desire it. We, we, we look around. Hey, by the way, how, how's the world doing with that whole thing? Man. You know, the, the, the humanist mindset, which is very, very popular in a lot of places, the whole, the whole point of humanism is that mankind, people, we're going to make this world a better place and we're just going to kind of evolve up, up, up into just this sort of like wonderful utopia. That's kind of, a, kind of a rough perspective to hold on to right now, wouldn't you say? No, peace only comes from the living God through Christ. The only place you are ever going to find that is Him. And it's deeper than the peace you've ever imagined. It's greater and more far-reaching than anything you could invent for yourself. Why is that? Because all the trauma, all the difficulty, everything we're facing now is by, by one major problem. It's called sin. When the fall of the universe happened, this catastrophic just event of, of sin ripping away our parents, Adam and Eve, from God, that, that, that decision they made in which they forsook him and listened uh, to the lies of the enemy, they brought upon the entire universe the state that we're in right now. So all the wars, all the lack of peace, all the, the dissonance that we're all so weary of, it is ultimately all there simply because of one thing. We have turned to our own way. So the Bible says, all of us like sheep have turned astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But here's the beautiful thing. The Bible also tells us that the Lord, God, caused all of our sin, all of our perversity, literally is what it says, to fall upon Christ. He's our hope. And that's why grace and peace only come through him. Now, let me ask you a question. As you're approaching the mess of life, as you're dealing with things in a fallen world, as you're trying to navigate your way through, as maybe you're even seeking to make peace with someone, are you mindful of the reality that grace and peace come only from God? He's the only source. So whatever you do in that interaction, wherever you're, however you're trying to deal with it, however you're attempting to, to make things whole again in this ripped up, messed up situation, you, do you realize that it's God alone who's going to do that? And the, the grace to en- enable you to enter into it and the peace that will result, we would hope, from, that, from your desires in that situation, they're only going to come from him. How's that going to show up? Well, are you praying a lot? As you enter in, or is prayer an afterthought? Oh, man, I got to go deal with this. There's a situation. There's a mess. I got to go in. Oh, oh, I should pray. Oh, yeah, I should do it too. Okay, pray. All right, got that done. Now, what am I going to do? Grace and peace only come from him. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ God.
So how do we navigate the mess of the already not yet? We must not only recall God's call and look to God's provision of grace and peace, but lastly, we also need to anticipate God's faithfulness. And that's what he goes into, and he, notice, he thanks God concerning them. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So I'm constantly praying. Now, he's not saying he doesn't do anything but pray. That always there, it's more like, you know, when you talk about an event and you use the phrase, everybody was there. You know, you're not saying there wasn't a person on the planet who wasn't there. Um, and in the same way, he's saying, no, I am constantly, regularly, over and over again, praying, thanking God for you. Why? Because God did give you his grace in Christ Jesus. And so we can see that God is faithful. So he's, he's thanking God for his faithfulness expressed through this messy church. And he kind of does it around kind of three different orbits. He does it citing God's past faithfulness, his present faithfulness, and his future faithfulness. So first we would see the past faithfulness there in, in verses 4 through 6. Notice he says, in everything, verse 5, you were enriched in him. That happened. God, God gave you riches in all speech and all knowledge. Now that phrase there, he's anticipating what he's going to talk about later in chapter 12. Speech and knowledge, those are spiritual gifts. And so notice what he's saying. Yeah, he's, he's given you these gifts of speech and knowledge, he's lavished these. He's enriched you with those gifts. That's a good thing. I'm going to have to deal with how you abuse those gifts later. Which, by the way, is a caution for all of us, right? How, how often is it that God gives us a gift and now our focus, attention, sureness, foundation rests in the gift rather than the giver? And then things get distorted, He's thanking God for this. God did give you all, you know, all, all speech and all knowledge. Notice again in verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So this is genuine change, genuine salvation. Your testimony concerning Jesus has been confirmed over time. And so this isn't just sort of a, he's not just buttering them up. Some have written, oh yeah, he was just, he's just kind of being nice now because he's going to give them the hammer later. You know, so it's feather and then hammer. No, that's not it at all. He's being very straightforward. He's establishing that those gifts were from God. They are to be thanked, or God is to be thanked for those gifts. And yet, they're being tempted to boast in those gifts. And so again, Paul draws attention to the source of the gifts, and he recognizes that they are truly riches from God, and yet he's now going to, or later he's going to correct the misuse of those things. And, uh, you know, the knowledge, for example, they're, they're, um, later on, Paul's going to say, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Why? Because they were proud that they knew. Oh, we know doctrine. Oh, yeah, we know it all. We, we're, we're in this thing. We've got it down. You want to debate? I'll debate you. Let's go. And Paul's gone, yeah, that's a gift from God. And yet... Knowledge can puff up, and especially when it's without love. And the way you're using this in the community is bringing division and arrogance and cliques instead of the building up of one another in love. Certainly, that knowledge element and speech played heavily 
in the culture. I've already mentioned that to you. So they were kind of given to seeing this in a more of a cultural way rather than in a biblical way. And they regarded those kind of gifts as sort of the, the things that the society around them valued the most, right? So they were like, hey, we're good at this. We're good at this too. Anyway, we see the present element of this in the first part of verse 7. Notice he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. That's right now. So God's given you these gifts. So in the past, he's given you these things. He's faithful. In the present, you don't lack anything right now. And later on, he's going to address that. Why, why are you acting as though these things weren't given to you? What do you have that didn't come from God? And if it did come from God, why are you boasting about it as if it didn't come from God? He'll address that. But then notice, it also looks to the future. Awaiting eagerly, look at the last portion of verse 7, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoa. Yeah, looking ahead to his return. Uh, our, our women's Bible studies are in Revelation right now. So they are looking at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking ahead. Anticipating the return of the king. And when you look at that, Let's face it, folks, you get into the, you're looking at the tribulation period and what's going on there, and it's scary. Not to mention the great white throne judgment. That's scary stuff. Standing before God. Now, thankfully for believers, there's a different judgment called the Bema Seat judgment. It's a judgment of rewards. But nonetheless, standing before the living God, what's that like? If that doesn't make your boots quake, I don't know what will. That's like, what? That's going to be a very sobering moment. And yet, look what he says in verse 8, referring to that time. For, for them, for the Corinthians, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? Yes. He's going to confirm you. He's going to be the one that advocates on your behalf, confirming the nature of your salvation. And notice, because of him, because of the work of Jesus, you're going to be blameless on the day of the Lord. Now, day of the Lord, that goes back to the Old Testament. They were all very well familiar with that. The day of the Lord is God's coming judgment. Uh, you think of the foreboding nature of, for example, Joel, the prophet, sounding the alarm about the day of the Lord. The people that should tremble on the day of the Lord's coming. Or Ezekiel and Amos, who refer to the time that God's going to return to vindicate his name. And you'll notice as Paul is dealing with this, he is constantly caught up with looking at the end. He sees the present context that he's living in. And he awaits and says to them, you're also awaiting the day that Christ returns to judge and to save. And when you have that kind of ominous language, you're going, oh man. Well, how do we deal with that? What's our hope? How do we get through that? Look at the very first portion of verse 9. Here's the answer. God is faithful. Phew. You notice he doesn't say, it's a really good thing that you have your theological and moral act together. No. He's saying, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, he's referencing back to calling, who you actually are, your identity. And so Paul is focused on giving thanks to God for his grace. And even in the face of their faults and their sin, Paul is thanking God that his grace has been at work amongst them in the past, is at work amongst them now, and will be at work in them in the future. Their position is secure on the day of judgment. They are blameless in the court of the living God. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness as a substitute in their place. The one that lived the life we could never live and died the death in our place that we deserved. So, again, as we engage and navigate the mess of the already and not yet, how are we approaching that together? We need to recall God's call, look to God's provision, and anticipate his faithfulness. And as we do so, then we've got the the gospel glasses on, and we can actually deal with the mess. And Paul will turn that corner and begin that next week. But in the meantime, let's together look at where we're at as we deal with those things in our life. And let's learn to navigate through this in a gospel-centered way. Let's pray. We ask that you would, again, anchor these things to our hearts, open our eyes, help us to see things from your vantage point rather than ours. We thank you for your calling, for your ongoing provision of grace and peace in the midst of the, the tumultuous seasons of life that we find ourselves in. We anticipate your faithfulness as we look ahead. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of all and the one who's coming back very soon. We praise you in his name. Amen.